Welcome to Movie Oubliette, the film review podcast for movies that most people have mercifully forgotten. I'm Dan. And I'm Conrad. And in each episode, we drag a forsaken film out of the Oubliette, discuss it and judge it to decide whether it should be set free, <laughs> or whether it should be thrown back and consigned to oblivion forever. <laughs> Bonjour and welcome to Movie Oubliette, the transcontinental film review podcast with me, Dan, constantly scrutinising over my sleep patterns with my new Fitbit in Melbourne, Australia. And me, Conrad, trying to avoid the hand gel riots in Cambridge, UK. (laughs) In this podcast, we discuss forgotten genre films, sci-fi, fantasy and horror, because reanimating the dead is what we like to witness whilst sipping our tea. Conrad, <laughs> how are you today? Um, very well so far, touch wood, washing my hands regularly, trying not to touch my face. <laughs> yes, stocking up on toilet paper. Well, yeah, this is weird. Why are you guys stocking up on toilet paper? <laughs> I don't know, but the the toilet paper memes are coming in hard and fast and I love it. Really? <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's Hilarious. odd. In this country, we're fighting over hand gel and over in Australia, you're all worried about toilet roll. It's, yeah, I guess so. I just don't understand. It, it says something deeply ingrained about our country's psyche. So I don't know what that is. <laughs> Maybe, yes. <laughs> but jokes aside, everyone, uh, please be safe out there. Wash your hands. Uh, isolate yourselves if you have any symptoms. Yes, indeed. Do take care of each other. Conrad, anything in the mailbag today? We do. We have our first ever comment from someone in Russia, which when we translated it turned out not to be spam or abuse, which is great. (laughs) (laughs) So this was from Victor Labutin, and he, referring to Hollow Man, said, This is an old invisible, but good. Which is true. Yes, very true. I saw the new Invisible Man last weekend, actually. Oh, how was it? Really good. Fantastically good. Yeah, so I like the director. He did upgrade, didn't he? Yes, yes. I'm yet to see uh, the new Invisible Man, but it's on my list. Also on Hollow Man, in reference to Kevin Bacon, Neil Davies said, It's a pity they don't include podcasts when working out Kevin Bacon numbers. You'd now have a Kevin Bacon number of three via Kelly Maroney. Whoa, that's amazing. (laughs) There's a claim to fame. Yes. Although actually it could be one because Soda Jerker, which Simon Barber hosts, have interviewed Kevin Bacon. Oh, yes. Kevin Bacon has a music career with his brother, the Bacon Brothers. So there you go. So maybe that's one via podcasts. I don't know. Yeah. (laughs) On our next episode, Kevin Bacon. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, fingers crossed. On to our latest episode about Howard the Duck, Paranoid Alandroid said, I enjoyed this a lot as a kid, whereas Poeticon Music said, The tongue freaked me out as a kid. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes, that scene. Uh, very Lovecraftian, and it came out of nowhere. Yeah, big tentacle tongue from Dr. Jenning, yeah. We've got a new listener as well. Tom Lives on Twitter said, This episode is hilarious. I can't stop laughing. Also, a shudder recommendation for Conrad, Terrified. It's my favourite horror movie of 2018. I hope you check it out and like it too. So... Thanks for that recommendation and welcome aboard, Tom. Yeah. Um, I did check out Terrified last night. I watched the first 10 minutes of it and it scared the shit out of me. Really? (laughs) Whoa. Yes. It is really disturbing. It's about these paranormal events happening in a, a few houses in a suburban neighbourhood in Buenos Aires. It's an Argentinian film. Okay. And it is freaky as hell. It scared the shit out of me, so I thought, I cannot watch this before I go to sleep, so <laughs> I'm saving it for daylight. Sorry. Yes. Bit of a wimp, but... Yeah. Wow, wow. 
I mean, I I feel like you're not easily spooked, so this is a high praise. It is, yeah. No, I haven't been that spooked by a movie for a long time, so thank you for that recommendation, Tom. <laughs> Another new listener, Nick Hardy. Hi, chaps. Just discovered the show. Really enjoying it. Liked the Willow House Enemy Mine eps. If I could throw my suggestions in, how about Krull? Mm. Oh, yes. Krull. <laughs> with, with a weapon that shouldn't even be held by a person. <laughs> <laughs> no, you need safety training before you pick yeah. that thing up. <laughs> we should check that out. That's a good call, Nick. Thank you. And welcome aboard. Mm, so many new listeners. The more the merrier. <laughs> <laughs> Tell your friends. Please do, yes. So what delightful film will we be checking out today, Conrad? Well, let me just wander over to that oubliette and throw it open to find out. <gasps> That's very bare in the oubliette, just a chair and a table with lots of torture devices on. Oh, and there's the film. Oh, yes. Whoa. Why is this chair following me? Weird. Get away. I'm going over here. This is freaking me out. Just get out of there, Conrad. Okay, I've got it. Oh, I don't know what that chair was going to do, but it was freaking me out. <laughs> <laughs> Disturbing chairs. <laughs> what do you have, Conrad? So I have Wes Craven's The Serpent and the Rainbow, a 1988 supernatural horror film starring Bill Pullman, Kathy Tyson, Zakes Mackay and Paul Winfield. Right. I had not seen this movie. What's it about? So in this movie, renowned Harvard anthropologist Dennis fills his suitcase with the entire Banana Republic khaki line and visits Haiti in search of a secret powder that creates zombies, which his corporate sponsors believe could be marketed as an anaesthetic. After doctor and love interest Marielle Duchamp takes him on a candlelit tour of the positive side of voodoo, Dennis confronts the forces of evil in the form of gold-toothed secret policeman and literal black magician Petro, who gently persuades him to leave Haiti by nailing his scrotum to a chair and burying him alive in a coffin with a crucifix-shaped window. Undeterred, Dennis <laughs> escapes, but can he rescue Marielle from certain decapitation while revolution tears the country apart around him? Oh, wow. It <laughs> <laughs> sounds extreme. It really does. <laughs> Let's find out. <laughs> Faster than a speeding Jaguar, we are back to talk about <laughs> The Serpent and the Rainbow. I hadn't seen it before. You had Conrad. I've seen a few Wes Craven films, mainly the famous ones, Nightmare on Elm Street, yeah. uh, Last House on the Left. Mm. Is that him? Yeah. yeah, yeah. The Hills Have Eyes. Yeah. <laughs> and obviously the Scream movies. But this movie, I hadn't even heard of it until recently. No. You've seen it before. What, what were your kind of impressions of this film watching it again yeah it's a funny one it's kind of buried in his filmography although there are quite a few things in there that are massively famous uh -huh. and iconic like nightmare on elm street and scream he's got quite a few things in there that people don't tend to talk about an awful lot yes and this comes at an interesting time for wes craven so he'd done as you say last house on the left the hills have eyes swamp thing and then hit the big time with A Nightmare on Elm Street but after that he kind of got branded as a horror director yes and kept having to do things like The Hills Have Eyes Part 2 oh, right. which I don't yes. think he enjoyed very much <laughs> and is primarily remembered for being the movie in which a dog has a flashback <laughs> which is ridiculous <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> and he'd done a film called Deadly Friend in 1986 which he wanted to be more sophisticated and mysterious but then at the last minute they recut it and took it out of his hands and he disowned oh. it and filled it with gore and he hated it. Oh, no. So he was really trying to establish himself as a more nuanced, interesting, mainstream director than all of these shocking, gory, terrifying movies would suggest. So this, The Serpent in the Rainbow, is the more serious side of Wes Craven. Mm. And I saw it in that context on VHS way back when as a kid. And it didn't make a huge impression on me. And I can't say I've ever had a huge urge to go back and watch it again. Mm. So 
that's where I am. Yeah, I mean, the serious <laughs> tone was the first thing that struck me with this movie. It wasn't the usual depravity and gore mm. that his films are drenched in. It was it was barely even a horror movie for a lot of the film as well. It was more of a drama and, you know, there was social and political commentary going on with the setting of it being in Haiti yeah. and uh, sort of the political unrest and that sort of thing. That was actually really interesting. But then voodoo as well <laughs> and zombies <laughs> and... I felt really unsure of the motivations of the characters and the drive of the plot. Mm. Like, it didn't really go anywhere. It kind of just floundered around. (laughs) And then the final act is just completely nuts. (laughs) (laughs) You don't see any of this stuff before. And then suddenly they threw all of their budget at the last scene, which is just batshit crazy, (laughs) to put it lightly. (laughs) Well, I think, again, he suffered at the hands of producers who thought, this is a Wes Craven movie, we need it to be scary. And I think initially he delivered a three-hour film shot entirely on location right that was sort of social commentary and a deep introspection between two different religions and the clash between catholicism and voodoo uh-huh. in haiti and the social uh, unrest there the revolutions and science and medicine and it was three hours long and really serious his first cut right so <laughs> it ended up being half that and then they pulled back the actors to do reshoots and forced him to do what I think is the majority of the final act of the movie, which you can tell it's kind of different because the first two-thirds of the movie are very outdoors, very on Mm -hmm. location. Mm -hmm. They're sort of rich and atmospheric and textured and you're getting a real sense that instead of sort of a package holiday tour, you're getting something that's really indicative of the people and their culture. (laughs) Yeah. Whereas the last 10, 20 minutes of the movie is very set-bound, very special effects-driven and pretty hokey. Yeah. <laughs> so it's a real switch. It reminded me of Nightmare on Elm Street. Mm. Just ridiculous, surreal stuff happening that makes no sense at all. In Nightmare on Elm Street, at least it could be a dream. In this, it's just, I don't know. I can't <laughs> even explain it. I mean, you've got long, extended corpse arms coming out of prison cells, and then he opens a door which suddenly gravity takes a different <laughs> <Change> approach <it. laughs> and he's hanging off this door frame. Uh, that's the sort of thing you would see in Nightmare on Elm Street and mm. I don't know whether it really gels in this movie because so much of the movie is so set in reality with tinges of voodoo and black magic, but it is very grounded mm. and then the last scene is the opposite yeah. of grounded. Yeah. <laughs> Literally. It's just completely overwhelmed, partly by Wes Craven's own fascination with dreams and levels of consciousness. So Nightmare on Street, it's dreams he's exploring in The Serpent and the Rainbow, it's hallucinogenic drugs, I think sure. is supposedly the motivation for what's happening. But reality breaks down so much and so quickly yeah. that it's kind of disorienting. I kind of wanted... Because Bill Pullman's character, Dennis, has all of these visions throughout the film. They're all kind of foreshadowing and premonitions of what's to come. But they weren't as crazy as they could have been. They were very short Mm. and very, oh, wow, that was it. Yeah. Like 10 seconds of something a little bit strange, but not that strange. Right, And so I didn't feel they had enough weight in trying to scare us as an audience Mm. because they were so short. And then it was back to talking and lots of talking. (laughs) Yeah, so it, it is. It's much more of a drama. And it comes out at a time when... There was quite an interest in voodoo and Afro-Caribbean and Latin American religions because you had Angel Heart by Alan Parker with Mickey Rourke and Robert De Niro. Uh And you also had The Believers directed by John Schlesinger with Martin Sheen and Helen Shaver. Right. But whereas those tend to represent voodooism as bloodthirsty cults with animal and child sacrifice and possession. And Mm -hmm. this does try to show, as I jokingly refer to in the synopsis at the beginning, it does try to show voodoo as a positive 
serious spiritual religion as well, mm -hmm. that there is a light and dark side to it. Yes. And that stuff I really enjoyed. Yes, I really enjoyed that part of it as well. And I really appreciated the whole location filming. It did feel so sort of oozing with Haitian culture and the Haitian people and the location of Haiti and the religion, kind of similar to the religious aspects in Shasha that we oh, covered yeah. previously. And also I liked the psychedelics and the state of consciousness melding with science that we've also seen in altered states. Mm. So I appreciate that as well. But I did feel there was kind of a lot of disconnect between all of these themes they didn't quite mesh together in the film. Mm. I, I felt it was quite disjointed in that respect. And I do have a lot of questions ah. about the plot. <laughs> and I don't know whether it's because those parts were explained more and then cut out because it was three hours long. Yeah. <laughs> There's one scene when Dennis has gone back to America and he's having dinner with all the science bigwigs and they're congratulating him. And then... The wife just has this crazy fit. Yeah. <laughs> Why? What, what's the significance of that? I think it's meant to be the influence of Petro. I think he's the antagonist in the movie and he's uh -huh. very powerful and he zombifies his enemies and buries them alive and then they come back and then they're bent to his evil will and he keeps their souls or something inside small easily breakable clay pots yes <laughs> for some reason just lined up waiting for someone to break them push them over on a shelf yeah yeah <laughs> i know doesn't keep them safe or secret they're the source <laughs> of his power but he just puts them on display in very flimsy shelving units, which yes. <laughs> seems like a mistake. Yes. <laughs> but yeah, there's this sense that he has this supernatural power in the waking world, which makes him even more of a threat than Freddy Krueger, mm -hmm. that can reach across continents. Right. I think that's what that was um, going for. Okay. Because I felt I felt it was really unclear what his powers were mm. because I felt like he needed to steal their souls and put them in an urn, and then he had power over... Dennis and could make him see things and stuff. But he was also doing that before he had zombified Dennis. So yeah. uh, he, he was in visions before he even met Dennis as well. So yeah. I don't know. No. And I don't understand that vision either because he has a vision where he ends up frolicking with a jaguar. Yes. <laughs> a very <laughs> as you absurd do. <laughs> scene. Yes. <laughs> so that's this movie's random puma. Yes. Random jaguar. <laughs> It's quite cute. They seem to be having a good time. And then you cut to an external shot of the shaman looking in on Bill Pullman, yes. who's just rolling around in a clearing with nothing there. With nothing, yes. So it's sort of a an external perspective on what's going on. But when Dennis sits up, there's a storm approaching and the shaman covers himself with his robes. And then when Dennis opens the robes, the shaman has turned into Petro yes. in sort of a prediction of what's coming. <laughs> so was all of it a vision? Did he visualise the external perspective on himself? I just... Levels of reality just seem to be breaking down very quickly. Yeah, me. that's the thing as well. There wasn't sort of a clear rule. It wasn't like... In altered states, he took the drug and then hallucinated. Mm. He was not even taking drugs often in lots of this film, and he was hallucinating. Uh, it seemed very unclear to me. Yeah. And I didn't really understand the connection between Petro's voodoo power and his political power, such that when the revolution begins at the end of the movie... His hair goes white. Ah. It's not when they destroy the jars. Isn't it? No, his hair goes white when revolution breaks out. I'm not sure if it's a bit of a shock or right. something. Right, okay, okay. Know. Yeah, and I didn't really understand how that was working. But maybe, again, it's just tying together his mystical power and his political power. Yeah, maybe. Visibly. Maybe. I don't, <laughs> I don't know. My other question is, I wasn't sure how the powder worked. Mm. So the powder that zombified people, it only lasted 12 hours, is that right? I think so, yeah. So this is tetrodotoxin, I think, is the actual active ingredient that was discovered by Wade Davis, the ethnobotanist who wrote the book on which this movie is based. It's sort of based on a true story or at mm. least a real effort to discover 
the active ingredient of this powder and maybe whether it has any modern medicinal applications. Sure. So the drug only lasts 12 hours and then they're fine after because uh, when they were visiting in the insane asylum, I guess it was, and they meet uh, a woman that had supposedly died and come back uh, and then they finally meet up with Christoph, Mm. which is the guy at the very start of the film that dies and comes back. But he does not look like a very sane no. guy. No. <laughs> <laughs> he hangs out in graveyards and not the sort of guy I would want, I don't know, serving maybe food or anything. <laughs> so no. I don't understand like why Dennis was so intent on finding this powder if it turned people into quite literally zombies. Like they just seemed quite mindless and not in reality. Yeah. Is that something that's useful in in (laughs) medicine? (laughs) Well, they thought that it might be an anaesthetic, that the initial effects which are it can give the appearance of death because it slows your respiration and heart rate down to an almost undetectable level. And therefore that could be useful. It's the same thing that you find in puffer fish, actually, naturally. So, you know, there are these puffer fish that unless they're prepared very carefully, they kill you. Yes. <laughs> That's tetrodotoxin. It's a neurotoxin. So I think they were interested in practical applications of that as a method of an anesthetizing somebody. But given that you're aware throughout and can feel, hear and experience everything, that sounds like a terrible anesthetic. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) But can you feel pain though? I kind of assume that they couldn't feel pain once they were under this. Maybe. Um, well, they were jabbing chance, needles in their eyes to see whether they were still alive or not. But <laughs> I know. It's the greatest way to find out if someone's alive. <laughs> yeah, who knew? <laughs> just... <laughs> but yeah, I, I was just unsure of, of the effects of the powder. And when people were given it, suddenly their souls were now owned by Petro yeah. in an urn that he makes somehow um <laughs> so it's like ghost pottery and the supernatural again <laughs> <laughs> yes maybe um because after all is well and petro is engulfed in flames dennis doesn't seem that worried mm. to go on living as a zombie no so i guess the feeling is that the toxin works in the physical sense in terms of making it appear as though you're dead so you can be accidentally buried alive yes. but all of the fears that they have in terms of how it's affected them afterwards is entirely based on a belief system and not actually a practical, real thing. So they were thinking, okay, this is a really good drug that makes you look dead and everything else is just a load of superstitious nonsense and not to worry about it. I think that was the idea. And the Uh, film sort of skirts between the two and sort of suggests that both may be real. Yeah, that was, again, unclear to me. Yeah, (laughs) And I wasn't sure about the motivations of... uh, is his name Petro? I didn't actually catch his name throughout the whole movie. I just <laughs> referred to him as bad guy in my, bad guy. <laughs> my brain. Yeah, he's Petro. The bad guy. <laughs> uh, so Petro, like, what was his motivations for tormenting Dennis? Was it purely just a power thing? Yeah, I didn't really understand that either because part of it, I thought, was him trying to keep the power of the zombie powder under wraps so that he could squander it for himself and maintain control over it. You know, that he didn't really want the secret to leave Haiti or for anybody else to be able to do it. Mm -hmm. But then he just sort of frightens Dennis and nails his scrotum to a chair and then puts him on a plane home again and then keeps scaring him at dinner parties by possessing random socialite women so that they lunge at him over the table. And then he comes back and then he arrests him again. I just keep thinking, why don't you just kill him and bury him in a shallow grave somewhere and just have done with it? Why do you Mm. keep letting him go? Yeah, I don't understand why they keep letting him go. (laughs) Yeah, that was my concern as well with the film. Like Plot-wise, it didn't seem to have a clear goal. No. He would get captured and tortured and then let go and then he got captured again. But it's just, 
what was the point in all of that, Mr. Bad Guy? Yeah. What was the point? I don't know. <laughs> and I'd love to know what the original ending was because the special effects extravaganza in Corridors is certainly not what was originally mm. intended. Yeah. I, I definitely don't think that that was meant to be there because it just gets ridiculous in the end. And it's so obviously cheap and hastily put together too because it's all, as I said, it's all indoors, it's all in sets and they reuse things so... Paul Winfield, who plays another character who Dennis meets on his travels, he has a scene where he dies and a scorpion comes out of a fake head effect. Sure. They use that fake head again. They just have Paul Winfield show up as a zombie so that he can rip his own head off Mm -hmm. for no apparent reason. Yes. And then you have these, as you said, these rubbery zombie arms coming out of (laughs) prison cell windows. And Bill Pullman sort of theatrically rolling into all of them on one side of the corridor to the other when he could just walk down the middle and miss all of them. And then Zakes Mokai, who plays Petro, a 54-year-old man, just keeps being fired horizontally at Dennis. He just seems to be coming out of a cannon off screen. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) it's almost like he's a gymnast and he's just jumped off a springboard into into the frame. (laughs) It just gets ridiculous. And even after they've dispensed with him by smashing all of his clay pots and destroying all of his souls so that he bursts into flames and then disappears, Appears. He comes back again in the room in which Dennis was tortured earlier and he's burned at this point now and so he looks like Black Freddy Krueger mm-hmm. and Dennis supernaturally nails his scrotum to a chair and then the chair falls through the floor and I have no idea if Dennis has superpowers now or if he's just imagining all of this. Mm-hmm. It just feels to me like something that was tacked on because some producer somewhere couldn't get over the scrotum scene and felt that that one thing had to be paid back and revenge sure. at the end of the movie that Dennis's emasculation is the only plot thread that needs to be resolved mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and I thought that wasn't the point that wasn't the point of that scene at all so uh, the ending <laughs> not great yeah yeah <laughs> it did feel like another movie like if it was going to be batshit crazy have it be batshit crazy throughout the entire film mm. so there's some sort of sense of consistency but because it was so grounded most of the time, all of these scenes just brought me out of the film. Yeah. Completely. Yeah. Another thing about the movie that I really hate yes. is the narration. Mm. And I'm wondering whether the narration was added after the fact to try to explain things to the audience because it doesn't feel like it needs to be there. It's kind of like Blade Runner in 82. It feels entirely redundant, Mm. every single thing he says. And the really weird thing about it is he says it all in the present tense too. So when he's in the Amazon and he comes back to his helicopter to find that his pilot is dead, Mm -hmm. he says, something more evil and powerful has killed my pilot. I know this like the cold closing in on me. And I think we can see the pilot's dead and he's got to run. Why is he telling us this? Why is it in the present tense? It's almost like the most boring DVD extra commentary. One of those ones where the director and the actors, instead of telling you what happened Mm -hmm. or what they were going for or how they made it or a funny thing that happened on set, they just describe, oh, this is when he opens the refrigerator. (laughs) (laughs) It drove me nuts, all of the narration. What did you think of it? (laughs) I have a pet peeve of narration in film. I think it's lazy filmmaking. Mm. It's literally telling the audience what is going on rather than showing. Yeah, I found it really frustrating. Mm. It was kind of very bored narration (laughs) as well. (laughs) It made the scenes even kind of more boring than they should have been. Uh, It's kind of like in Blade Runner. I think Harrison Ford purposefully recorded the dialogue as boringly as he could possibly make it in the hope that they wouldn't use it. But of course, it ended up on the finished version of the movie when it was first released. I mean, another thing is that it sort of slips in a little bit of casual sexism because you have Dennis's narration saying when he first meets Marielle, he says, Hmm. I didn't expect Dr. Duchamp to look like Dr. Duchamp did. Yeah. Oh, the doctor is a woman. Woo. Oh, uh. scandalous. <laughs> 
I did actually quite like the characters, though. Mm. I thought all the actors in this film were really good. Marielle was great. Yeah. It was just wonderful having a non-white female lead in a film like this. Yeah. Because often in a lot of these movies, a white guy goes to some non-white country to meet up with a white woman. Yes. (laughs) It was kind (laughs) of nice having sort of a Haitian character. And I really liked the character of Mozart. Yeah. The sort of swindler con man that tries to sell him rat poison and... (laughs) Ends up kind of befriending him. Uh, I thought he was really cool. He was unpredictable, and that's what I like to see in characters. Yeah, and not evil. That was the thing. They weren't all simple, superstitious folk. Mm. So the character of Marielle, played by Kathy Tyson, who'd been in Mona Lisa with Bob Hoskins a few years before, and I don't think did many movies after this, she's really good. Mm. And it's great to see... Somebody, as you say, a character that's local who isn't dumb, who isn't superstitious and frightened and just needing to be rescued all the time. Sure. She's an intelligent, educated woman who introduces us to the way in which the two different religions of Catholicism and Voodooism have combined into this thing all of its own. She's really interesting Mm, and authoritative. So I'm a little bit disappointed that she ends up jumping up and down on Dennis in the waterfall cathedral scene that they end up having sex it feels just sort of unnecessary and then she ends up being the damsel in distress that has to be rescued at the end Mm, which also is a bit disappointing yeah i mean that's i feel like a sign of the times (laughs) that's Mm. pretty much every 80s action movie (laughs) yeah (laughs) they have to insert the sex scene somewhere um and bill pullman what did you think of him i I felt like he was very kind of michael douglasy in this film as well like i i kind of kept forgetting it was bill pullman (laughs) (laughs) thinking it was michael douglas um yeah i struggle with bill pullman though because the two films that he'd done immediately before this were space balls and Ruthless People, oh, right. where yes. he plays practically an idiot, just a complete moron, and he's hilarious in both of them. Yeah. Interestingly, in Ruthless People, one of my favourite lines in that is when he and his accomplice are planning a getaway because they're these small-time crooks, uh-huh. and they're planning to go to Tahiti, but he mishears it and says, I'm looking forward to going to Haiti. Oh, that's funny. <laughs> the lady who's masterminding it all says, not to Haiti, Tahiti. <laughs> Who wants to go to a place that's currently suffering from a massive revolution? You moron. And then his very next film, he's in Haiti. <laughs> yeah, right. So, that's hilarious. But I have the same problem with him that I have with Bruce Campbell, which is that after seeing him in Evil Dead and Army of Darkness, where he is just hilarious, when you see him in something like Congo, yet again, adventure in the jungle Mm -hmm. when he starts screaming because something terrifying is happening to him i just don't take it seriously at all (laughs) (laughs) right (laughs) so i mean i know him from the david lynch film lost highway oh yeah he's in that right yeah yeah and that film still creeps me out oh that's very disturbing really really creepy i did feel even the torture scene in this film it didn't have enough weight for me. I don't know. It's something about the acting or how it was framed. I, I feel like if that scene was filmed now, it would be just filled with gore and it would mm. make you queasy. Whereas that was kind of quite tame yeah. in comparison. And then having him... I didn't actually know it was going through his balls until (laughs) after when he said, oh, it went through my scrotum. (laughs) And I was a bit shocked. (laughs) I thought it was going to be in his knee or something. But yeah, I did like the villain character as well, Petro. I thought he was quite menacing and quite evil. But yeah, his demise was just ridiculous. Just yeah. bursting into flames with jaguars and <laughs> rainbow essence floating around. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, where Dennis discovers that he has a jaguar Patronus all of a sudden. Yeah. <laughs> it's just sure. crazy. <laughs> Why not? But yeah. It's ridiculous. Yes. Zakes Mackay was an interesting actor. He played lots of really incredibly powerful, dramatic roles. And he comes from South Africa. Oh. So he suffered a lot of the corruption and torture 
a lot of the members of his family were murdered during that period. Wow. So he said to Wes Craven, I can play this guy. I know who he is. I know how they behave. Uh-huh. He'd lived through this. So he is really able to bring an intense, sinister, but also over the top of a sort of bureaucratic banality mm. to him that, yeah, it makes him really disturbing as a character. And I think he works really well. Mm. So I think the characters are great. The setting's incredible. Yeah, the setting is, I mean, I read somewhere that they filmed in actual Haiti, but it got so dangerous that the officials said to the crew, we cannot guarantee your safety. And they had to finish filming in the Dominican Republic. Yeah. But it's just so great having a film shot on location mm. because it really, really makes a difference. Especially knowing, you know, it's an 80s film, so there's not a huge amount of green screen effects and probably zero CGI. It felt authentic. And some of those scenes, that religious procession scene where there's all the candles. and Yeah. Wow. It looked amazing. It's beautiful. Yeah. That was a scene that they had problems with. So they were in Haiti for 11 days. And when they did the religious procession scene, they hired 3,000 extras, I think. Wow. For a very small amount of money. Like they were offered 25 cents to do this because because of the economy at the time that was a considerable amount of money Uh but it was cheap for them but of course I think actually they tried to hire a thousand extras and then three thousand turned up because they all told their family and friends oh right then all of a sudden they've got three thousand people and then they started saying that they wanted more money and then the crew of I don't know 80 100 people are surrounded by three thousand people who are threatening to stone them to death so Yeah, they wired in some extra money. They came over with some fistfuls of cash and said, "Okay, we'll pay all of you for today's religious procession. So they filmed all of that sequence. And then the day after, they left. Okay. (laughs) Because they thought, this is not safe. (laughs) So, yeah, they scootled over next door to the Dominican Republic, which wasn't in turmoil, and finished the filming there for five, six weeks or something. So, yeah, fascinating production Everybody was sick, everybody was having a bad time. But the end result is you get something that is just so rich and so Mm. vibrant and amazing to look at. You feel as though you've been exposed to something completely different that you've never seen before when you watch this rather than just a studio backlot over and over again. So Yes, looks great. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) it looks great. But does it actually work? That's the question. (laughs) Now it's time for Random Trivia. So Dan, what fascinating piece of trivia fell out of a clay pot that you smashed open today? Well, Bill Pullman's wife uh, actually cameos in this film. Uh, Her name is Tamara Hurwitz. And she is the white lady that pushes a needle through one of the Haitians' face at the fire dance party. Yeah, that's that's her. (laughs) Really? Wow. She doesn't look very happy when she's doing it, actually, I Well, noticed. yeah, she looks a little uncomfortable about it, but yeah, that's a cameo. <laughs> <laughs> and they have been happily married for over 30 years, so... Wow, still mm. together. I think she's not an actress, so I think that helps. <laughs> yeah, she's a normal human <laughs> being. <laughs> yeah. And that's our trivia. So music-wise, I noticed it. There was your expected tribal music, so lots of drumming and that sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. But there was a considerable amount of synth music, electronic music in here as well, which I found quite interesting and quite kind of nuanced as well. It didn't sound dated to me. No, it's using a lot of early sampler effects. So it's Brad Fidel and it's in between Terminator, which was his breakthrough score, and Terminator 2, uh-huh. where he started really using samplers a lot. So you've got synthesized choir samples and real percussion sample to create complex layers. And mm-hmm. yeah, so it's quite interesting in, in that respect. And it is very much Brad Fidel, though, because <laughs> right at the end of the movie, when the credits are going up, you've got da-dun, da-dun, da-dun. Oh, <laughs> like, yes. Oh, that rhythm again? <laughs> okay. But we do have to give him a break because he only had something like 10 days to compose this score because no, they went down various wow. avenues before they arrived at Brad Fidel. 
Bell's door. Originally, they were going for a score by the percussionist Babatunde Olatunji. Okay. I'm probably pronouncing that wrong. Uh, who was famous in the 50s and 60s and inspired people like Coltrane and Santana, mm -hmm. Jingo being the most famous track that he did. So they hired this Nigerian-born percussionist to create very ethnically appropriate music, uh -huh. but the end result just didn't work dramatically because he wasn't a film school composer. So sure, sure. they ended up going with Brad Fidel and getting him to sort of incorporate elements. And But he only had 10 days, so he's just oh like thrashing this stuff out as fast as he possibly can. Yeah, right. Yeah, I mean, I, I thought it was effective. I thought it injected suspense. It was action music when it needed to be action music. I wouldn't say it was groundbreaking, no. But I guess, you know, time restrictions yeah. don't allow for iconic <laughs> melodies or anything to come out of you. I did like it. I didn't think it sounded dated. It didn't sound too 80s, no. I guess. I think with 80s music, if you start having the synth drums come in with the doo-doo-doo-doo, <laughs> then it dates it. But if you're having pads and more sort of suspended notes on since it doesn't seem as retro sounding. That's true. But there are a couple of places where I felt as though the music was working against the film. Oh, yes. <laughs> the yes. scene where Dennis is trekking through the Amazon after he's found his helicopter pilot dead. Mm -hmm. It just sounds sort of neutral. Like you're watching a travel show where they're saying, <laughs> come to the Amazon, yeah, look at sure. the lush green forest. And I'm thinking, actually, he is running for his life. Maybe there <laughs> should be more tension here. Yeah, I, I agree. I didn't actually feel that he was that lost no. as well, because he, he didn't seem to be running for very long. And then suddenly he hits a road and yeah. civilization, I guess. Yeah, it didn't seem... Like he was in any life-threatening situations. No, not at all. <laughs> yeah, there were a few places where I thought, mm, this music's not working as well as it could. But mostly, I didn't notice it too much. It just sort of worked. It was there as part of the fabric of the film, and it just kind of worked. It did. <laughs> so. I mean, if you kind of look at it from a horror aspect, I don't think it really works as a horror score. No. He didn't really make use of silence as horror movies should. Mm. Um, there weren't really any jump scare stings or anything like that. It works. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. It was, which is refreshing. It was quite hard to come by for a very long time. It was one of the first CDs that was released by Varese Saraband. Uh -huh. So it became quite rare and on the secondary market used to fetch ridiculous prices. So oh. recently re-released it in their little box of horrors box set. Oh, yes. So if you want to get hold of The Serpent and the Rainbow, that's where you can get it. Oh, Okay. Nice little set. So after I watched the movie, I looked on my DVD to see what extras it had. Mm -hmm. And it had nothing oh. apart from the trailer. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so I watched the trailer. <laughs> and it makes it look like this riveting, action-packed horror experience. Yeah. And it really wasn't. They pretty much crammed all of the dream sequences mm. in one trailer. Right. And it was not <laughs> like that at all because those dream sequences are so short and so few and far between. Mm. I feel like they marketed it completely wrong. They should have marketed it more of a drama with added extra scary bits. But Yeah. And also there's a scene in the trailer where he's all white and he's got the cross on his head. Mm. And also in all of the stills for the poster and the DVD cover – has that, but you never see that in the film. He's never that really pale white, and so... It's a bit misleading. Yeah, bizarre marketing. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and I think to sum up the movie, I think that's really the crux of the problem, which is that Wes Craven tried so hard to break out of the horror box and to show that he could be a more considered director who could tackle a serious topic mm. in a nuanced and erudite way, and... The producers said, no, we need to market it as a Wes Craven horror extravaganza. Yeah. So he's sent back to shoot more weird crap with people flying mm. across rooms and exploding in flames and goodness knows what else. And they cut together a trailer like that. And I guess people went to the cinema expecting that yes. and then got two thirds of a really serious location based movie 
and then 20 minutes of crazy crap mm. <laughs> just wondered what they were looking at and you kind of feel like i would have loved to have seen what wes craven had originally i mm. would have loved to see that yeah it's just such a shame i think he just didn't get a fair shake as a director mm. throughout his career he even tried to make a serious drama at one point with meryl streep music from the heart and they had to bury his name on the credits and never mention that it was him in any of the promotional materials. Because what? No. They were afraid that people would think, why is this horror director doing this movie? So they had to hide the fact that he was involved and never mention it. Wow. So it's really sad when you get that pigeonholed. Is like that yeah typecast as a director yeah in this film i have to say honestly in all the serious parts of the film and in inverted commas mm. i felt quite bored <laughs> to be honest like it was very engaging acting it was great characters great locations great visuals but i kind of felt bored and because of the writing because i didn't understand the motivations for the villain i didn't really understand the motivations for for Dennis mm. and Marielle helping him. It kind of was directionless and then it ended and the bad guy dies. But I didn't really feel a sense of closure and I didn't feel like we were going towards a sense of closure. No. And so I got a little bit excited every time there was weird dream sequences <laughs> and even the batshit crazy ending. I thought, oh, yeah, there's something interesting happening because <laughs> all the other parts were a bit, slow yeah but directionless i found yeah directionless is right because even the traditional things that you do in a scene like you end a scene by pointing towards where the next scene is going to go so when dennis arrives in haiti he says to marielle i want to see christoph immediately cut to them at a party yeah why why are they at a party now why is someone eating a glass yeah what's happening uh, <laughs> I, yeah, it, yeah, it does feel kind of aimless. I think it's just uh, they had to cut down a three-hour movie somehow. Yeah. That's the consequences of shaving off too much or Wes Craven, I guess, having his intended vision and the studios having a completely different vision. And yeah. this is that movie that resulted from that. Yeah, which I think happened to Wes Craven a lot. Which is a shame. It's really sad, though, because I, I never knew this about him. Mm. And I love his standout iconic films, and I did not know he was going through all of this with the other films that kind of never made it yeah. as big. I know, it's really sad. It's a shame. When he was asked in an interview towards the end of his life, is he satisfied with how his career has gone? And, you know, Is he happy still making movies? And he said he didn't take for granted the opportunity that he had in making movies in the first place. And if he was going to be a caged bird, he would sing the best song he could. Wow. Which I thought was just a really sweet and amazing thing to say. Sure. Um, speaks volumes about what kind of a man he was. Yeah. But speaking of special features, one thing my Blu-ray had, you were saying your DVD didn't have anything apart from the trailer. <laughs> yes. I had a commentary with Bill Pullman, which was fascinating. Was it? Yeah, it really was. Until 45 minutes in, when he suddenly says, oh, I've got to be somewhere, and then leaves. <laughs> what? <laughs> What? <laughs> Which I have to say, biggest commentary faux pas ever. <laughs> On my list of things I hate in audio commentaries, I had number one, just describing the film. Yes. Number two, eating. There was a commentary that I listened to where somebody was eating something oh, and it just made no. me feel so ill. I had to turn it oh, off. Oh, no. But getting up halfway through and leaving because you have to be somewhere <laughs> really takes the crown. Wow. So, Couldn't they have well re rebooked him in to do the rest of the commentary? <laughs> I can't believe they just left it like that. Yeah. Oh, well, let's release it. Yeah. 45 minutes of a commentary. <laughs> 45 minutes of a commentary and then the actor leaves. Oh, wow. It's terrible. Okay. I mean, at least Sean Astin does that on Goonies, which is a whole cast reunion. And it's so lovely to see all of the Goonies as adults with Richard Donner, the director, in the middle. <laughs> and they have various parts of the commentary where they pop up on the screen so you can see them. And it's lovely to see them all. Wow. And then halfway through, Sean Astin says, oh, I've got to be somewhere, oh. and gets up and leaves. <laughs> but at least you're left with other people there, whereas this one... 
and Bill Pullman just leaves you with nothing except the soundtrack. Seriously, the there's not even anyone else. No. What? That's even worse. I know. It's terrible. Oh my gosh. Terrible. Oh wow. <laughs> Coming to you live from the Movie Oubliette Theatre, it's the prestigious Movie Awards. I'm sure you've all been hanging around graveyards in anticipation for the Moobly Awards. It's where we nominate our favourite zombifying parts of the film in a number of Jaguar-inspiring categories. Best quote. My favourite quote is from Marielle, and it's after Dennis accuses her of perpetrating a hoax for money. And she says, The way Professor Schumbacher spoke of you, it was as if you walked on water. Now I know why. Shit floats. (laughs) (laughs) I love that quote. I love it so much. It was also the quote that I wrote down as well. Was it? Yeah. (laughs) So good. Best line in the movie, and Kathy nails it. So. Mm. Most, most 80s, 80s moment. My most 80s part of the film. It's not really 80s, but it's something you don't really see kind of post 2000s. But every time you see a TV or a computer screen in these movies, there's always that flickering bar that goes down on the screen. <laughs> Because of the frame rate of the cameras couldn't quite... Sync up, yeah. Yeah, yeah. You never see that now because it's it's often just green screened or something. Back then, it always kind of makes me laugh because it's like, oh... cameras (laughs) don't quite don't quite work (laughs) i know what you mean it's a very signature look (laughs) yeah how about you 80s my most 80s moment was there always appears to be a moment in these movies where you go to a jungle or a tropical location where the main female character has a snake slither over her while she's unawares and the male character has to rescue her or intervene Uh, in some way I'm just thinking of Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom and Kathleen Turner in Romancing the Stone. Just snakes and ladies all the time. Yeah, yeah. It's either snakes or spiders or scorpions. And there are all three in this movie. There are. Yeah, I forgot that he's buried alive with a tarantula on his face. (laughs) Best hair or costume. My favourite here was actually one of the bad guy goons of the secret police. This is the first time I noticed him. He could have appeared early in the film. Is when uh, Dennis is getting shuffled on the plane at gunpoint Mm. by this goon. I love this guy's sort of facial hair. So he's got almost like Mr. T beard soul patch thing going on. But then he's got his chops. Ah. They're so angled. They almost go across his face. It's almost like a... (laughs) A racing stripe or something across his face and it looks amazing. He's just a very stylish goon. He does look like a reject from Live and Let Die though, doesn't he? Isn't he the one that's in all the coffin burning rituals as well? I think so, yes, yeah. Very well groomed. He is, yeah. How about you? My nomination, probably a bit obvious, Bill Pullman's beautiful, blonde, floppy hair. It's a perfect example of the Hugh Grant cut that I think everybody had in the late 80s, early 90s. And what I love is that no matter what the circumstances are, what he's been through, which location he's in, which far-flung location he's slept in overnight, it's always blown dry and immaculate. It's amazing. (laughs) (laughs) I also love his shirts as well. Those kind of really vibrantly coloured shirts with geometric patterns Mm. all over it. Uh, It's very 80s, (laughs) very like Magnum P.I. Yeah. (laughs) It's very much white guy living abroad, isn't it? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Favourite scene! Probably an obvious pick, my favourite scene is the candlelit Catholic stroke voodoo pilgrimage to the Waterfall Cathedral with thousands of extras holding candles mm. through all these beautiful, lush locations. And it's it's just such a shame that it leads up to a cheesy sex scene, <laughs> but the rest of the sequence is just amazing to look at and not a speck of CGI in it. It's all real, and mm. that's the sort of thing I really appreciate. Yeah, I really miss crowd scenes with actual crowds. 
I feel like every <laughs> movie these days, all the crowds are just CGI now. I mean, it's yeah. cheaper, obviously, but it just doesn't quite look the same. No. How about you? I was going to say that scene as well, but as I watched the movie, and this is going to sound just insane for me to say this, but I actually did like the last batch of crazy scene. Really? With all the craziness that was going on. I just... It kind of got to the point in the movie where I was getting so bored and having that was actually <laughs> like just a good injection of insanity for the last scene. It made no sense, obviously, but nice to see some body horror and some fluids and <laughs> and chairs that chase you across the room. Yeah, why not? <laughs> Most cliche horror moment. My horror cliche, I think, is a bit of an 80s cliche too, and it's the full body burn effect that happens right. <laughs> at the end with Petro for no apparent reason. But we seem to be setting stuntmen on fire an awful lot in the 80s. Yeah. I'm thinking of Halloween 2, I'm thinking of The Thing. I, I, it just seemed to happen all the time because, I don't know, they figured out how to do it, so they were just going to do it in every <laughs> single movie. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> I looked up to see some interesting world records about full body burns. The world record for the number of people being burned simultaneously is 32 stuntmen in a Cape Town car park on the 25th of May 2018. Okay. And the longest body burn was by Joseph Todling in Austria who did a body burn for five minutes and 41 seconds in 2013. <laughs> wow. <laughs> oh, my God. That is impressive. It is impressive. You think they just do it with CGI these days, but I guess flames still aren't that great, are they? Yeah. Uh, I do notice it's often CGI now. It must be a, a safety thing. Yeah. My horror cliche, I, I mean, I've said it so many times, but it's just, it's just bugs. I guess it's it's yeah. bugs. The helicopter pilot <laughs> has some maggot or something on his face, and you've got the the spider in the coffin and uh, the scorpion coming out of Lucien's mouth. And mm. pff, horror movies have to have bugs, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that poor helicopter pilot. Actually, those maggots were biting him. So. Oh right. <laughs> He was desperate for the scene to end so that he could brush them off. Oh, wow. Yeah, I did read that all of the scenes with Bill Pullman and, and the spider and the snake and the jaguar, they're all real animals and it's actually him. So that's... Really? Yeah, amazing, right? <laughs> wow, that's incredible. Best special effect. My favourite effect, it's just like a really funny kind of effect that I, I, I guess was supposed to be more terrifying. But it's when Dennis <laughs> is having dinner and suddenly a corpse hand touches him and he looks down <laughs> and it's just a corpse hand coming out of a soup and it just recedes back into a soup. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it probably, you know, a hole in the table... That sort of thing, but it looked so amazing. It was such a simple effect, <laughs> and it made me laugh because, god damn, he's definitely not going to eat that soup after that. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think he makes the excuse that he's still got stomach problems after all of his foreign travel. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I love the way it sort of slides back in almost apologetically. I know, like, I know. Sorry. August, <laughs> <laughs> go back in your soup. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's marvellous. How about you? <laughs> Favourite effect? Uh, for me, it's a fairly simple camera effect, but I don't remember it appearing in a film before this, although I've seen it many times since, which is strapping a camera to the actor while they are oh, disorientated, yes. while they're doing a scene where they're supposed to be sort of under the effects of drugs. So they stay fixed in the centre of the frame because the camera is attached to them and the world just seems to sort of swirl and tilt around them. Oh. And it gives you that real subjective feel of disorientation. And it's quite disturbing. And it happens uh, to Bill Pullman a couple of times in the movie. And I yeah. really like how they do it. I thought it was quite effective. Yeah, it really was. I mean, when he gets uh, that puff of powder blown into mm. him and he, he kind of panics and runs down the street, it's quite a gripping scene. Yeah, it is. Yeah, you wonder what you'd do yourself in that situation. Exactly. It's pretty scary. Exactly. Favourite sound effect. 
My favorite sound effect is actually a vocalization, and it's the female zombie effect that you get on the soundtrack whenever there's a zombie in the scene. Uh-huh. So for some reason in the background, even though the character themselves isn't doing anything, you can just hear, and it just <laughs> made me giggle. <laughs> right, right, right. Is that coming from that, that bride zombie that keeps popping up yeah yeah yes okay <laughs> uh, my favorite sound is actually uh so they dig up her corpse i think and then mm. they use his yeah. skull in in the powder mm. and it's that scene where dennis is told to crush the skull with his bare hands oh, and that sound yeah, is oh my god gave me chills but it's uh, it's such a great <laughs> crunchy mm. i don't know how they managed to achieve that sound but it sounds exactly how it should sound yeah really visceral reaction to that it's horrible yeah <laughs> love it love that stuff yeah <laughs> it's probably something delicious it's probably some really nice food <laughs> yeah yeah it's probably like i don't know nachos yeah <laughs> <I don't> know. <laughs> Most funniest moment. For me, the funniest moment has to be the scene where Dennis returns to the scene of his former torture and scrotum nailing, and he's chased around the room by the chair. And to me, <laughs> it's just... I know it's supposed to be scary, like, ooh, this is the chair your scrotum was nailed to, mm. but it's just sort of squeaking apologetically towards him occasionally, like a anxious dog yeah it's just ridiculous yeah so it scrapes <laughs> along the floor and makes it a squeaking sound it did sound like a whining dog and it kind of was quite <laughs> timid in how it was moving as well and even when dennis <laughs> escapes from the room the chair goes to the door and then retreats and slams the door as if it's like some spoiled <laughs> child or something <laughs> <laughs> yeah I was in fits all the way through that. Yes, 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 yes. <laughs> How about you? We've mentioned it. It's when Petro in the final scene keeps leaping into frame. Because it's <laughs> yeah. not like a normal leap. It's a horizontal leap into <laughs> yeah. frame. Like you need, a, you need a springboard and a decent like 10 metre run up to achieve that sort of <laughs> yeah. level of, of horizontalness. <laughs> And he does it twice, which is just insane. It did make me laugh. I had to rewind it because I couldn't believe what I was seeing. <laughs> 54-year-old respected actor being fired horizontally across the room. Exactly. Wow. And that's our movie. Yeah. We are back for the final verdict. Should the serpent and the rainbow be freed from its coffin and left to frolic <laughs> with jaguars in the world and <laughs> be admired by everyone? Or should it be nailed to a chair and thrown back into the oubliette, forgotten forever? Conrad, what were your final thoughts about this film? Well, I cast my mind back to the first time I saw it. I thought it was okay. There were some interesting elements. I didn't remember much about it and had no compunction to go back to it. Watching it again for this podcast, I can appreciate what Wes Craven was trying to achieve. I love the fact that it's shot on location. It's so 80s in that respect. It's so lush. It's such a fascinating culture to look at at such a fascinating period, being racked by revolution. Mm. And the combination of an intelligent exploration of voodoo, not just the demonization of it, but actually looking at what its impact was on the culture in that period and how it's mixed with Catholicism as well. And I can see what he was going for, but then the ending of the movie just kind of undermines all of that and it just turns into, hey, it's Wes Craven, there must be lots of different dreams happening and layers of dreams and crazy shit and special effects <laughs> and so on. But then that was kind of more interesting than the 
rest of the movie and the narration is so ham-fisted and dull and feels like it's been imposed after the fact and but it's got a great cast and they do such a great job of it and the effects are good and so I, I don't I kind of ambivalent about it but I think if you put a gun to my head and said would you really recommend this movie to other people I don't know I think I finally came down on no I think there are other great Wes Craven movies. I think there is a great Wes Craven movie in here somewhere in the vaults, but as it stands now, theatrically released, mm. this isn't it. Right, Not right. For me. How about you? Yeah, I I would actually agree with you. I I felt mm. like writing wise, it just seemed quite muddled. I just didn't have a sense of direction, mm. and that may be because of the fact that it was edited down from a three hour mm. film. But, yeah, I just didn't feel invested. And I, a lot of the film, especially the serious parts, which I feel that Wes Craven was trying to devote all of his effort into, felt quite boring. And even though the ending was batshit, <laughs> it was probably the most awake I felt in the whole film. And oh, it's such a mm. shame because I did like the setting of, of Haiti and the fact that it was going through all of this political turmoil and, and social unrest. And that was an interesting setting for a horror film. That was very interesting. Yeah. But they uh, it just didn't quite get executed. And yeah, I wouldn't recommend this film. But it is a competent film. So it just seems ludicrous to throw this back in the oubliette. But... Uh, too much studio interference just resulted in a bit of a mess. Yeah. Okay, well, hand me that four-inch nail. <laughs> no, got oh. it. <laughs> okay. In you go. Oh, oh wow. Bye-bye. <laughs> <laughs> I feel so bad throwing a Wes Craven film back in the oubliette, but... Uh, mm. It is what it is. Yes, but there's more to explore in his back catalogue, so who knows what gems we may find in the oubliette mm. from Wes Craven. So any gems for next time, Conrad? Well, we were going to do something in keeping with the Bond theme because of the new James Bond movie coming out. Oh, but, yes. of course, coronavirus has pushed Bond back oh. to November. Oh, no. So instead... We thought that we would do something inspired by virus outbreaks. So <laughs> next time we will be looking at the 2008 science fiction action film... Doomsday. Right. Very fitting, I guess. Yeah. So it's directed by Neil Marshall, he of Dog Soldiers and The Descent and most recently the remake of Hellboy which oh. probably wasn't a good idea. Why remake a Guillermo del Toro movie? Mm. Oh, well, anyway. Yeah. <laughs> but Doomsday stars Rona Mitra, Bob Hoskins, Adrian Lester, Alexander Siddig, and Malcolm McDowell. Oh, he pops up in every sci-fi movie. <laughs> he does, yeah. I think if you buy him lunch, he'll just, he'll just do it. <laughs> <laughs> And if you want to keep up to date with all of our episodes and be teased into maybe becoming a patron, uh, you can follow us on <laughs> Instagram, Twitter and Facebook as Movie Oubliette. Yes, and if you'd like to email us, we're movie.oubliette at gmail.com. We love hearing from you. Yes, and as mentioned, if you would love to be a patron, we would love you forever. Uh, for $1, <laughs> you can suggest a movie for us to review or for $5, you can get access to all of that bonus stuff, the good stuff. Mm, all those things that you never knew you wanted to hear, but they're all there. <laughs> <laughs> they are. <laughs> and if you've been enjoying our podcast and would like to let everybody know about it, then please do consider rating and reviewing us on iTunes or whichever podcast platform you're using, because it really helps us to reach new audiences. Yes, yes. Even if you live in Russia, give us a Russian review. Yeah, pop it into Google Translate and be surprised and delighted with what you've written. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, thanks for joining us, listeners. Uh, we'll see you next time. Bye for now. We will. Bye-bye. <laughs>
You've got a pretty face. The girls must like it. Do you like it, your pretty white face? <laughs> <laughs>